You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 689. To be a filmmaker, you have to lead. You have to be psychotic in your desire to do something. People always like the easy route. You have to push very hard to get something unusual, something different. Danny Boyle. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Dave Bullis. My next guest is a film and videographer from Ottawa, Canada. He has been in the business for years making different wildlife videos. And uh, he and I are going to talk a lot about videography, doing interviews, even like this. Um, you know, what happens when somebody, you know, you, you do a project and somebody says, hey, I can get my, my kid to make this for, for cheaper. Why am I paying you $10,000 or $5,000? I can get my kid to do it with an iPhone. We talk all about that stuff, which happens a lot nowadays, which is one of the reasons why I don't do it anymore. Uh, because it just got <laughs> it just got such a pain in the ass. Because if your kid can do it, why the hell are you even talking to me? And uh, I tell, tell a little bit of some stories in, in this, too, about some of the things that I've encountered. And we're going to talk about Black Box, which is what my next guest decided to make. And it's a really, really cool venture. I actually joined. I actually have affiliate links for it in the show notes as well if you want to support the podcast. But it's a place where videographers can upload stock footage. Uh, not only that, but feature films. And we're going to talk all about that in this show as you know, as, as things have changed, I think it's important to, to you know you have to have all these different revenues for your, for your projects or revenues for for yourself. Um, they say that that every millionaire has seven different streams of revenue. So I think as you start to make different things, you have to always wonder where am I going to put this stuff? If I want to go out and make some stock footage, uh, you know maybe I'll get a, a sunset or whatever whatever you're going to do. Where are you going to put all that? How it's going to how it's going to actually affect you know uh, where you're going to put it. And I think that's where this all comes in, you know, because there's so many different stock footage places out there, but this is a little different. And um, as you can tell, the man behind it is um, is a really great guy coming from a really good place. And that's why uh, I think this is just not only an excellent interview, but I think this is the platform to do it on. Again, I might be a little biased. So without further ado, Pat McGowan. I was always uh, a kid that was interested in a lot of different things. And I think I was pretty visual, but I was more on the audio side. I was a musician. 
Um, I was interested in the music business. I worked as a musician for a long time, but I also had my scientific side. So I ended up doing like pre-meds and biology and psychology at uh, college. And, um, and I was a photographer when I was a kid. So I was just kind of this mishmash mixed up kid, didn't know what I wanted to do. But I had an opportunity uh, when I was at, at college to join a rock band and, uh, and do some studio work. And when I walked into the actual recording studio, it was a 16-track recording studio in Toronto, and I'll never forget the feeling that I was home. So I was really, uh, I was a studio guy, and that led me into film as a composer and as an audio post guy, and then led me into more as a director. And, um, you know, it's kind of best of all worlds for me. So, but you know, the people with all those very inter interests, they usually end up making the most interesting people. Well, I'm not going to say that. Maybe you can. <laughs> At the end of the interview, let's see what you say then. All right. All right. Now, now, now the pressure's on, Pat. Now it has to be interesting. So, so basically, when you were going to college, you know, and, and you were just doing all these different things, I, that kind of sounds like my route too. Because you know, when I was going to college, I was doing ten thousand different things. But I was always the one thing I was steady was screenwriting and stuff like that. And then mm -hmm. by, by the time I was ready to graduate, I was like, I don't want to do this one thing anymore, which was business. I was like, I don't want to go in that anymore. I'm about to get a degree in it. So it's like, what the what, what the hell? I hear you, man. Absolutely. We're really lucky to do what we do, you know, because we get to be involved in so many different things and so many different aspects of life. We get to travel. We get to meet a lot of people, um, you know, in my in my corporate and government and uh, and film production life. I, I was on a new subject matter every week or two, you know, and you had to become an ex instant expert and you had to be able to hold your own, especially if you were interviewing people like you do. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, a wonderful ride. Yeah. Interviewing people. I, well, I, I, you know, just as a side of this podcast has really helped me in other ways too. Um, it's only made, made me like a better conversationalist. But it just, you know, you can you can pretty much not talk to anybody. I mean, I was always pretty good before at networking, um, but I think this is maybe from like good to like great because now you can just you have the confidence just to go up and strike a conversation about anything. Yeah, for sure, man. You just have to ask two or three questions, and and uh, you know, people people love to talk about themselves and what they do, and if you just get out of their way, normally normally you'll get some gold. Yeah, very very true. That's why I, I tend to let people just sort of they like the guests take take over the the conversation because a lot of times they my my guests will say oh my god I, I just was talking 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 and I said well that's a good thing because people <laughs> yeah. could cuz I'm here every week you know I go the guest is only here for the one time so I might as well you know showcase them well once you get me going you're not going to shut me up that easily <laughs> I, you, I always say feel free to talk as much as you want uh, yeah. and and I won't edit it and make it look bad or anything all right Sounds good to me, man. <laughs> so, so uh, Pat, when you're going out there and you're doing like freelance video videography work and stuff like that, and you're doing commercial work and etc., what are some of the things that you've learned or some of the tips that you could like give? Because I, you know, I had a friend of mine, for instance, he he always would go into like different stores, like like mom and pop stores and pizza places and stuff, and he'd always, you know, say to the owner, "Hey, this is a really cool place. Uh, you know, this is a really cool blah blah blah." And he always would try to, you know, different locations. He always would keep in the back of his mind in case he ever had to film there for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you ever, you know, do you have any tips like that about how you, you know, maybe got, you know, maybe met different people in different places? 
Yeah, no question about that, especially because um, of some of the work that I do and a lot of the work that I ended up doing had to do with filming, uh, you know, B-roll and stock footage. So you're always on the lookout for uh, friendly people that can give you access. Uh, you're always on the lookout for great locations that you can return to later. Um, so, yeah, you just really keep your eyes peeled and, and you know, figure it out. And if you end up doing, you know, a TV series or whatever, you've kind of got, you know, in my case, I'm Canadian and I've got Canada mapped. I've been all over the country. I've been all in every single province. I've been in every single city. And we know a lot of people. And, um, you know, the thing is, is that we're all kind of connected now. So once you make those relationships and you understand the mapping, then it's so much easier to go back. And the next time you're there, you kind of know where you are. And, uh, yeah, so you just kind of keep your eyes peeled and, and develop the relationships as you move along. Yeah, building relationships, that is the key part of this, my friend, building relationships. It's all about people, no question. And it's getting more and more about people every day, in spite of the fact that we've been, I think we've been kind of trained with social media and so on that we can, you know, live in our hobbit holes and still be connected, which is true. But actually sitting down and talking to people and getting to know them and uh, being with them is the only way to really connect. And I think we have an opportunity now, you know, uh, to do that more and more on a global level as well. So we kind of put it all together and say we got all these platforms and everything. Uh, but when you go there and, and just the relationships, the world is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's not a virtual world. It's a virtual and a real world. And you have to live in both. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know I'm guilty of that too, where I try to just. Uh, well, I did. I, I consciously made that decision. You know, um, I, I don't know about you, Pat, but I got burned out from going to networking events. I mean, I got burned out. I used to be Mister Networking Event too, and eventually I stopped because I said, you know what. Um, eventually you start to realize, you know, half these people are never going to, they don't, they're not going to make anything because they really don't want to make anything. They want to go somewhere and be seen and take photos and stuff like that. And you, your goals aren't the same thing as, as them. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I don't really know how to respond to that, Dave, because I, I, I do a fair bit of networking and I usually end up meeting at least one or two people at, you know, whatever the event is, where you end up actually getting a good forged relationship. But, you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of people are just going to party or drink or whatever their thing is. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to be able to weed that out. We did a network event, networking event in Toronto about a month ago. And, yeah, there were a lot of people there that were just for the there for the beer. But a number of people I ended up developing, you know, some really good uh, contacts with and relationships with, uh, because as we'll get into a little bit later, we're actually trying to grow a global movement. So that means that we we have to find the people that are interested in having that connection and then reaching out and, and having that global network. Um, so that, uh, you know, creators like us actually have a safer place to operate. So, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Like some of the networking events, there's a lot of posing and posturing and uh, a lot of bullshit. Um, but you do, you know, there's usually some pretty good people at most of these things. 
Yeah, and, and I always feel free to always disagree with me. Um, you know, most people do. <laughs> it's always and it's always good too to hear hear two different opinions on the podcast. Um, you know, and, and so so let's just say you know going to these networking events. You know, whether they're in Canada like you are, or they're in the uh, you know United States like like I am. Uh, wherever they might be listening to this, you know, what are some of the tips that you have for networking? You know, just like going out there and meeting people and, and, and some of the things that you maybe even like warning signs that you kind of see of people to stay away from. Well, I think the main thing is just to be open and honest and transparent. And, you know, um, again, you know, it, it comes down to some people skills too. being able to walk up to somebody and say, hey, my name is what's your name? What do you do? Tell me more. Be able to ask those three or four questions that are going to get them comfortable so that they can, you know, actually participate in a conversation with you. Or if they're cagey, you know, you kind of break down their defenses a little bit and, um, you know, so that you can actually have a one on one conversation. Uh, the thing I always watch for is eye contact. Actually, if people are not going to engage you with eye contact, then it's going to be tougher work. Or if they're kind of, you know, looking around to see if there's a better person to talk to, maybe they think you're not worth it or you've got nothing for them. Um, I also really kind of watch out for people that don't ask questions back because that means that they're not engaged in the conversation. Um, and if you've got to prod and prod and prod, I say just cut it off, say thanks a lot and move on. Go talk to somebody else. And, and you know what? I, I like that too, Pat, because I think that works for, you know, even, uh, you know, virtual meetings. Like, you know, if you meet somebody online, um, maybe you see their Facebook or something or their Twitter or whatever. Um, I, you know, I found that people who just kind of, you have to keep prodding them, whether it be like, hey, this or that, you know, about this or that, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, they, they don't want to ask you about what you do or whatever. Um, those are the t generally the people where you're kind of like, all right, they're not in this meeting and you know what, we're just wasting each other's time at this point. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, but again, you know, like we got kind of get back to this whole idea of what we do professionally too. And, and I interview a lot of people. I mean, I've actually, if I had to count the interviews I've done, I've done thousands in my career. And, uh, you know, I kind of conduct myself as if I'm doing an interview. I like to ask a lot of questions. So if I'm trying to engage somebody even on Facebook, you know, I'll ask them, what do you do? You know, what's your specialty? Uh, what are you up to? What kind of projects are you working on? Uh, what's pissing you off? You know, like what barriers do you have in, in your in your life right now that, you know, you could do better with? And um, I find that, you know, I'd say I'd say that probably seven out of 10 people are willing to have the conversation once they realize uh, the big thing these days is no one wants to be sold to. So they're always they're always on their guard about, uh, you know, what do you want from me? Right. So if you can kind of break through that, it's uh, it's easier to get a more meaningful discussion going. And yeah, hey, man, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I am selling. Sometimes I do want you to get involved with what we're doing. Um, but if you go right in with that pitch hard at the beginning, your chances are going to go down. So, you know, you've got to really get get human, you know, have a human conversation, be sincere, be honest. And um, like I said, I think seven out of 10 people will generally engage. And the other three, well, you know what? So be it. Uh, no, no big deal. No problem. Or maybe they'll come back later. Um, who knows? So, you know, you mentioned doing thousands and thousands of interviews. Um, 
you know, so let's just, you know, go back to that and how you sort of got started doing that, you know, back to, to, to actually going around and just, you know, talking to all these different people. So how did that whole journey start? Uh, were, were you just going around interviewing all these people? Well, I usually interview people when I'm on assignment. So um, if we're producing a video where we need to collect interviews or we're doing a doc, uh, that's my job. So I'm the guy that sits in the chair and directs the shoot and does the interviewing. And, um, you know, I've learned a whole lot doing it. And I've learned a lot about psychology, a lot about people. But, yeah, so it all starts with a project. Um, and, you know, typically – I love to go in cold. I don't do a lot of research when I do interviews. I, I want to explore the information along the path of the interview rather than walking in with 39 questions and just running through the questions. Um, we want to find out what people are passionate about. So you've got to read their body language. Like interviewing is a really interesting thing. You're usually working at at least two levels and us and probably three. So you've got your physical situation where you've got to engage with body language that allows the person to feel a comfortable, but b also um, they want you want them to know that you're interested. And body language has an awful lot to do with that. You can turn people off so easily with the wrong wrong body language. So you've got to be really uh, well versed in how that works, and you also have to be able to read body language to know you know where you're going to go with this thing. The other level you're working at is at the intellectual level. So you're going to, you know, I always say, you know, when I'm recording, when I'm when I'm doing interviews, my brain is actually recording the interview so that I know where all the contextual points are. I know where the pickups and drop offs are. I know how to correct people. I know how to redirect them. Uh, so as I'm sitting there, you know, nodding and smiling and, and using body language, my brain is just furiously processing what they're saying. So you have to listen and actually process it and embed it and, and store it so that later in the interview, you can come back and make a make a what I call a contextual link to what was said before. And that is often when you get the best stuff. And then you've got the other the other level, which is the conversation level, because now I've got to respond in a conversational way that's actually reasonably intelligent. And, uh, you know, unless people know that I, I, I care about what they're saying, I understand what they're saying, and I know enough about what they're saying to actually have them feel validated and engaged. So it's a really, really interesting process. And you and you end up exhausted at the end of them. You know, some interviews you just burn so much uh, uh, brain energy that I mean you're, you need you need to go for lunch like right away. So um, it's an amazing process actually. And you know, a lot of people, you know, I see some young folks coming out, and the biggest caution that I would say is don't just run the questions, right? Don't just run the questions. Get yourself into that conversation. Be interested in what people are saying, and you'd be amazed at what you're going to get. Uh, and one tip I always use with uh, with a lot of the people I interview is I don't respond to them as soon as they stop talking, because sometimes if you leave a five second pregnant pause in the conversation, they're going to say what they really mean. Um, right. Because a lot of people get very nervous and they're vetting what they're saying. And, you know, we've had people in the chair crying because they couldn't do the interview. Because uh, they were so nervous, but if you just let them sit, um, you know, just let it go, and don't stop the camera and don't cut, 
um, sometimes that's when the best stuff happens. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I was giving you the pregnant pause there. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's a friend of mine once gave me this piece of advice and he said, um, he said to me that whenever he's negotiating, he always puts in that pregnant pause on purpose uh, because he always says the first person that talks loses. Um, You know what? As on the business side, if you talk too much, you lose the deal. That's all there is to it. You got to learn how to sit. Yeah, and, and he's a fellow Canadian too, Pat. Oh yeah, where's he from? I believe he's from Toronto. Okay, um, because that's, I, all, that's where all the sharks live in in Canada. <laughs> it, it, well, all he does is is talk about the housing market there, but that's a whole nother podcast. Uh, <laughs> Especially now. Yeah, he, he all he does is talk about the housing market and and he just like about the insanity of it. But um, but again, that's that's a whole other whole other thing. Well, actually, you know, maybe it's interesting. Maybe some of, he he he's accusing some some people of of like Chinese millionaires and billionaires of using these houses as sort of like a money laundering scam. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, um, hey, you know, anything's possible. Well, you know what, man, I, I think that happens in London, New York. Los Angeles, Seattle, Vancouver, um, certainly West Coast. Definitely, there's a lot of Chinese money on the move. I don't know if it's dirty money or not. I have no opinion about that. But I know, uh, you know, Vancouver, Vancouver is ridiculous. And it, it's actually more ridiculous than Toronto. But there's a big correction about to happen. So uh, I wouldn't be buying any high-priced real estate in Toronto just right now. I think I'd walk away from that. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, I, I heard about that, too, about that correction. But, uh, but you know, just to get you know, back to, to what we're talking about with interviewing, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you a question and, and I'll and I'll, uh, you know, I'll tell you my funny story first. I want to ask you about one of the worst interviews you've ever done, because, um, mm-hmm. again, we always learn more from our mistakes than from our successes. And um, so so what happened was when I was working in higher ed, they had asked me. Um, so I, I the, to to do this. Um, this probably isn't the worst one, but it's the funniest one. So they asked me to do this um, this interview segment with the girls' volleyball team, and the coach, who, you know, who was a part time coach, showed up late, and he has all these questions just hands you know scribbled on a piece of paper. It's all you know cut up. He just ripped it out of a notebook, and um, he's asking these questions. Well, these girls are talking about stuff that I could never ever use in a school setting. They're talking about doing drugs. They're talking about they're they're yeah, they're, they're they're trash talking their teammates. Um, they're doing this and that, and the te- and the coach was reading the same questions to each each girl because we told him to, and and then he would be you know ask a, a couple different questions here and there, and finally when he asked me could if I put could I put this together and I said you don't want me to use any of that. I said, you know, except for one girl, those girls were, you know, you know, trash talking girls, shit talking this and that. And he goes, he goes, uh, yeah, right, I guess. Well, you just put something together. So I put this thing together, uh-huh. and and Pat, let me tell you, his face dropped, and he he goes, I he goes, you're right, I could never use any of this. He goes, it was it was it was it was so hilarious because what I would do is I, I kind of gave it like the MTV style of editing where I was like, 
here you go. Here's what they think of this, this, and this. And it was like, you know, they, they thought, uh, oh, what do you think of uh, this thing? Oh, it's terrible. It sucks. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you can't use any of that. You can't have the school promote this. But uh, no. it was just it was just hilarious um, just because of how ridiculous it was. So, Pat, I want to throw the question to you. You know, what, what was one of the worst, you know, times you've had, you know, uh, doing an interview segment? Well, I, I, I was telling you a few minutes ago, I had this this poor woman who was so upset that she couldn't perform. So, you know, this is one of the things that we tell people, do not try to memorize what you're going to say in the interview. Like, don't take our quite like a lot of a lot of the institutional or government types or, you know, bureaucratic types. They want you to send them the questions in advance so they can prepare. So, you know, then they end up writing, uh, you know, writing Ben-Hur so that they can answer these questions and it's just ridiculous what they come in with you know like pages and pages and pages and you're just looking at them going you can't possibly like there's no way you're going to be able to do that and this lady that i was working with and it was a very serious subject matter um and she was like the ceo and she was brilliant really intelligent person very uh you know beautiful woman um clearly very professional but boy, she was nervous. And I could tell as soon as she walked in the room, it was going to be trouble. So we got her in the chair. It was in a studio setting. You know, everything's controlled environment. And we got her in the chair and she could not, just could not do it. Could not do it. And I think she had like a tiny little nervous breakdown. Anyways, we had her in the chair for two hours because she wouldn't quit either. I kept telling her. You know, you need to take a break, uh, you know, don't worry about it. And we were being really, really kind, uh, you know, and accommodating. And she was in this chair for two hours and I thought she was just going to snap. It, it was it was a horrible experience. It was it was painful, actually, for everybody in the room, even the camera guy and uh, producer was in the room. <laughs> Her colleagues were in the room and everybody just felt so bad. So that's. You know, I know that's not like, uh, you know, talking to a bunch of teenage girls trash talking each other. I haven't <laughs> really have that experience. But, you know, that was probably the worst one. It's just terrible when you get people who are so upset that they're judging themselves so harshly when all they have to do is just talk like we're having coffee. Right. And I've got a, like a zillion techniques that I use to get people to settle down and to relax and stop being so freaked out. Uh, but sometimes they just don't work. You know, they just don't work. And, um, you know, some of the worst ones we do are actually when the client, you know, tells us, well, we don't have travel budget to send you to locations. So, you know, we're going to hire a camera guy locally. And can you direct by Skype? And those are really, really hard to do because you don't have the personal connection. You can't do eye contact properly. Um, and if you get somebody who's tough to deal with in that situation, you know, sometimes the client's grinding on you because, well, why couldn't you get it? What's so hard about this? And I'm going, well, you know, I guess you haven't done several thousand interviews, so it's going to be hard for me to explain this to you. But uh, they sucked. So what do you want me to do? I, I can't force these people to, to uh, give a good interview, basically. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of pressure and, uh, you know, there's money on the line and, and everything. So um, my attitude is always the same. And I always ask myself this question in all production situations. It's basically like, uh, who's going to die here? Like, what are the stakes? 
okay, so nobody's going to die. Everybody relax. <laughs> let's just let's just do our jobs and we'll do our good jobs. We're all professionals. Let's just get this done. But, you know, we don't need stress and pressure in production situations. It's just it's just a completely ridiculous waste of time when you do that. Yes. I could not agree more, man. I, and I've been a part of both of both productions like that, where it's been, you know, um, sort of more loose, and then other was where it was just, you know, you walk on set and you could just feel the tension. Oh yeah. Uh, you, you know, where the where the director doesn't like the DP, and the DP doesn't like the producer, or the producer doesn't like the director, and you're just kind of yep. like, wow, you know, who the hell needs this stuff? It's just bullshit. Yeah. So you know, I came to a point in my career where I just said, I, I I'm not doing bullshit anymore. I'm not, I'm just not doing it. It's not worth it. So now I hunt uh, situations with my startup black box where it's a no bullshit deal. And even when I do some freelance work or I'm doing contract work, I just, I try to work it so that there's, there's no bullshit and it's all about the work and doing good work and, uh, you know, making sure they have a pleasant experience and you end up with a good product. And that's the bottom line because there's just no need for that. Yeah, you know it, it, that's so true. And I also like that phrase. Uh, you know, there's just no more bullshit products, so uh, or projects. I'm sorry. And so did, was there a point, by the way, Pat, where you you know what, what was the, was there like a project in particular that finally just set you over the edge? Well, uh, you know that's a big question, Dave. So. Um, the, the answer is yes and no. I had a, a, a huge project that we had won that was a, a museum job. And it was a million-dollar contract. It was a big, big contract. And there were a number of players involved, a uh, design agency out of the States, and uh, a lot of curators and a lot of experts. And um, it was a very, very difficult project. The, the product at the end was absolutely wonderful. But there were so many uh, human-imposed um, uh, turf-defending uh, types of interactions during the process. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show that it really became a very unpleasant project and it could have been, you know, really rewarding to do. Uh, so it was just basically people being people, you know, and defending their turf and, you know, whatever was going on. And really it was during that project that I said to myself, okay, I've been in this business a long time. I've had a great career. I think I'm ready to move away from doing this type of work um, because the bureaucracy and the layers of, of crap were sucked the soul right out of your chest and then you couldn't even be creative anymore because they, they took all the fun out of it. And, you know, I don't want to be cynical or anything, but there's a lot of that going on these days, right? Where it's just... Uh, there's so much bureaucracy. There's so much political correctness. Uh, there's so much business pressure that, um, honestly, a lot of these jobs just aren't fun to do anymore. Yes, and that, that's what happened to me, too, um, when I got burned out. Um, not even just doing freelance work, um, but like other, other work in general, you know, and just, you know, here, here's another story for you. I When I was doing freelance work, um, somebody asked me to come do this very, they said, it's just an interview. They said, it's just an interview. We're going over all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. 
and I get there, and it's a completely, it's a whole 180 from what they told me it was going to be. Oh, yeah. Instead, it's so- a it's a comp- <laughs> it, it, it was just a competition about uh, who could use like who could you know um, use this saw the fastest or whatever. And it was like this whole sort of convention. And I said to the guy, I said, "Wait a minute, this is completely different than what you said it was going to be." Um, and, and, and I mean, he was like, well, for, and you know, what was the kicker was too bad. I showed up there, and he had no idea who I was. And I said, "Aren't you?" Uh, and I won't use his name, but I said, "Aren't you blank?" And he goes. Yeah, and I said, well, I'm Dave, I'm the videographer. He goes, videographer for what? And I said, well, you're, I'm doing some interview thing today or something. And he, and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. So I go outside, I look at the business, and I'm like, wait, yeah, this is it. This is the place. And I, I, I call my friend who had, who had introduced us, and she comes out, and she goes, oh, yeah, that's him. And I go back in there, and I look at him, and I say, hey, you know, uh, I'm Dave. We've been talking back and forth for like a month now. And he goes, oh, yeah, I forgot you were coming. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, this, this and, it, and it it just went downhill from there, Pat. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, I don't want to get on my on a negative soapbox or anything because, uh, you know, things have changed. That's for sure. But this is just an example of how um, I think. I think the perceptions of what we do in the industry have changed a lot over the past five years, let's say. So I think the perception of, uh, you know, how professional we are, how well-trained and experienced we are, um, I think some people think that we are um, a bit of a commodity, right? You know, it's it's just the video guy. Oh, yeah, whatever, right? Uh, But they still want it done perfectly, but they don't even know what that entails. So, you know. Like I said, I don't want to get down on it too much because I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man. But, uh, you know, things have changed. And the perception of, of uh, what a professional does in our industry and who they are has has changed a lot. And, you know, quite frankly, I think in a lot of instances, we're seeing a lot of bad work being done, you know, in that context. And the clients don't even know that it's bad work anymore because the wrong person on their team is actually handling it. So, you know, we got this weird thing going on right now where, you know, it's, um, and it's always been that way. I mean, we we always had what we call the bottom feeders in the industry that just did shitty work, but everyone knew who they were and, and so on. And they, you know, they got hired on certain gigs, but usually not. And, um, those of us that were kind of working the higher end of the market, we knew we knew who who was who. But these days, it's like you know, if I tell a client, if I have a client tell me one more time in a meeting, well, you know, you guys are super overpriced because uh, you know, actually, my my son is taking film studies and uh, he's going to do it for us for a hundred bucks. And you know, I just got tired of having those meetings. Honestly, and these days, uh, you know, the quest, the one question I get asked by by clients in meetings is, uh, can you do it cheaper? Consistently. So it's time to say, actually, no, I, I can't do it cheaper. And um, if you want it done cheaper, you can get it done by somebody else. No problem. Uh, but you know, at the same time, the work is a little more scarce than it was, let's say 10 years ago. And the prices of the higher price jobs are actually coming down. So we're looking at a situation where our market is becoming, uh, commoditized as, as I say, you know, 
Um, we are less of a custom valued service than we were. We're now expected to do work uh, for the same rate that we were working for, hey man, 20 years ago. Think about it. Um, the rates haven't changed really very much, if at all. And now they're going down again for the contract work that we do in video and film. So, so at what point, you know, again, when I read your bio, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you realized you woke up one day and you realized you had been disrupted, uh, you know, and I, and I think that's a big part of it because what you said there is with, with, you know, Hey, I'm just going to have my son do it. Uh, I actually, let me tell you, I've had other people say that too. And, you know, you, 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 or, or I'm going to have my son edit this or whatever else. And, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, more power to you. If you think that, you know, your son can do it. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's just one of those things, but so at what point did you then create, you know, black box? Well, it's, uh, I created black box where I, I didn't create it three years ago. I ideated it three years ago. So I, I was sitting in my boardroom realizing that I had built, uh, you know, a beautiful company. I had 40 employees. I had offices in two cities, um, had a really great team and, I realized that the market had changed. So I realized a couple of things. First of all, we were involved in some uh, broadcast work here in Canada. And uh, I mean, you're familiar with the cutting the cord phenomenon. But what happens in markets like Canada is when the cord gets cut, the cable fees that people were paying are no longer allocated for broadcast production by the broadcasters because that's how they get their money. And and then in our market, the Canadian government has, you know, some fund matching programs and and um, and so on tax credits that are all predicated on the broadcasters coming to the table. Well, the broadcasters stopped coming to the table because they were making less money because people were cutting the cord. Now, why were they cutting the cord to go and uh, watch content from digital platforms like Netflix um, and YouTube and what have you? So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened at the same time is that technology became much more readily available with the advent of uh, DSLR uh, camera technology. So all of a sudden, the cost of acquiring equipment went down. If that's what you were going to buy, you know, it wasn't high end gear, it was low end gear, but it was low end gear that was doing good looking product. And the third thing that happened is we had a lot of young people coming into the market and people like to beat up on millennials. Personally, I don't think that's right. Uh, I know a lot of millennials and I, I really like these guys, but unfortunately they came into a market where they could tool themselves and were competent enough because they were doing some good work. I mean, when I say that the sun could do it, the sun could really do it, but the sun should have been getting paid 500 bucks a day rather than a hundred. That's my point. So the commodification happened on the perceived value of the of the work, right, from the client saying, well, my kid can do it for 100 bucks rather than you doing it for 500 bucks or whatever or a thousand, you know, which is what we used to get. So now we've got these three factors. We've got a glut of labor willing to work at lower pricing. And why would millennials work at lower pricing? Well, a lot of them were either living in apartments with roommates and they don't have car payments. They don't have college funds to build. They're not building for retirement. You know, they're young. And uh, because it used to be, you know, there were barriers to entry coming into the market. If you were going to be a video production company owner, you better 
have the ability to acquire capital so you could buy high-end cameras for $100,000 each. Edit systems cost a fortune. You had to have an edit bay. You had a voiceover booth. You had to have a small studio. Well, all that's gone now. Like people, kids are, are these millennials. Sorry, again, I don't like the term, but younger people, uh, you know, they're editing at Starbucks or they're forming into collectives where they're sharing small office spaces. And that's okay with them. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because they can cut the video on an on a on a MacBook uh, or a Surface or whatever, and they can shoot it on a DSLR. And they're not using a twenty thousand dollars Satchler tripod anymore. They're using a thousand dollar, you know, Vinton or or whatever or a Manfrotto. So everything. Uh, it wasn't just that one thing commodified and disrupted. Everything changed at the same time. And and then you had a lot of institutional clients like government clients or, uh, you know, uh, businesses, even bigger businesses, smaller businesses, bringing somebody in-house. So they would hire a young person to do it in-house. And why? Well, because the young person had the camera, had the edit bay in their pocket, uh, had control over. And, and these kids are quite well trained and they're multifaceted, like they can shoot and edit. Uh, they know how to do audio. They're not terrible at it. They're good at it. So, you know, this disruption had to do with that whole change from, you know, a team of three or four people doing work to a team of one or two doing work that didn't have an office, uh, probably weren't insured. Uh, you know what I mean? Didn't have staff. So all of this happened at the same time. So here I am sitting there, a 25-year veteran of the business, and yeah, we did get disrupted. We got disrupted at three levels. We had in 19 or 2015, we had four, I believe, four broadcast projects canceled because uh, at whatever there were three different broadcasters involved, were laying people off. So, you know, they were just canceling uh, series, and we had four series canceled. There's a huge amount of money involved. So yeah, we got hit pretty hard. So I'm sitting in my boardroom with my wife and I'm I'm like, okay, we're not making money. Who's making money? What's going on here? So we sat and we did a bunch of research and we concluded that there were two ends of the spectrum that were making money. There was the YouTube crowd, and that was prior to the uh, YouTube apocalypse that happened a year or so ago. And that was before they changed the monetization. But that's another problem that we can talk about. But uh, there were a lot of YouTubers who were making money. And we found, you know, we just said, let's go look at the top 10 YouTubers and see who's making money and see what they're making. And, you know, as a kind of a, a trained, experienced filmmaker, it was pretty shocking because I hadn't paid much attention to YouTube. Stupid me. Uh, and, and you're kind of looking at it going, wow, this stuff is popular. Why? Well, you know, we kind of figured with a couple of things, it was probably because a four-year-old sitting in the back of mommy's SUV hitting the iPad again and again and again, and people were making millions of dollars. There's this one channel we found called Disney Collector, and this is a, a Hispanic woman with really nice blingy fingernails and a really sweet-sounding voice who shows you how to use Play-Doh, right? Disney character Play-Doh shit. And... The woman has, has now got 250 million views on one of her videos or more. 
and she's purported to make $12 million a year or more from her YouTube bucks. Okay, so that's just a an eye-opener. And then I looked at the other end of the spectrum with Netflix, uh, and Netflix had not even started to – I mean, I don't even think Orange is the New Black had been uh, produced. 2015, yeah, maybe it was. Because I guess they're going into season four. Uh, at any rate, and we started to think, okay, well, we've got this distribution platform that's actually starting to create content. So what they're doing is they're uh, aggregating the rights to intellectual property at the top of their organization. And producers who used to make shows, own shows, and license shows to broadcasters are not going to be able to do that for very long. So it made me kind of think, you know, the term that that I believe came to me at the time was user-generated content. So you've got YouTubers making user-generated content, and you got Netflix making user-generated content. But where are creators in all of that? Well, in, in the YouTube case, you've got one or two people making this stuff. There aren't very many teams of trained people doing it, although there's lots of cool stuff going on in YouTube right now. Uh, but in the in the Netflix example, basically creators were turned into workers. So, and that's not bad when the rates are good and everything. But as I understand it, you know, the rates are dropping. And the people that I know in markets where you know big platforms are making a lot of content, um, the rates are static. They're stale. They've stalled. And even studio owners and equipment rental houses are getting really, really pushed on rate. So basically, you know, everybody's making money except Netflix. And people who want a gig in this industry, you know, they're really just looking for work. And they're being forced to take longer hour days uh, for less money. And I'm not saying that's happening everywhere. Uh, lots of people are going to say, hey, man, that's not true where I am or whatever. But it is true where a lot of people are because through our platform, I, I hear these people. I know them. And they want a better deal. So I decided to create a platform that was all about creators being able to do user-generated content alone or in groups and gain access to global markets not have to sell themselves as workers, but convert to being owners of the content that they make and take advantage of all the licensing fees, long tail revenue or uh, residuals. There, all the terms apply uh, and do better in their lives. And we want to do that on a global context where every creator all over the world actually has the same access because they have the same access to technology and tools, but they don't have the same access to markets and business systems. So what we designed is a platform that is really has really um, uh, captured and automated all of the things that creators need in order to work together, to make content, to co-own the content, and to share in the revenue streams that are developed through these new digital platforms. So we, we think it's really revolutionary. So it's, uh, you know, again, you touched on YouTube and, it, it, you know, I, I had friends who were creators who saw their, their you know, their monetization cut down. Um, some channels, hell, were even gotten into trouble with all the new rules. Uh, you know, and I have another friend who's just getting back into it and he has one of the top YouTube channels ever, which is crazy. Cool. Um, but, um, but just going back to black box, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it, it's allowing, so basically 
it's it's a it's cutting out the middleman essentially. You know what I mean? It, it's you can actually you know go on there and actually don't have to worry about you know selling. Um, you know what I'm trying to say? You're basically cutting out the middleman. Right? Yeah, no, but I think I can help you understand a little bit. But we're not cutting anybody out, okay? Because they're already cut out. Okay, being a producer is a much harder game because you've actually been turned into a worker again. Now, there are people who are de- who are developing product as producers and selling it to Netflix or licensing to Netflix, and that hasn't died, but a lot of that business has gone away. So what's happened is like people that used to be producers, like actual producers, have now become service producers. So they're getting paid, you know, by whoever their client is, and it could be ABC, NBC, it could be Hulu, it could be Netflix, it could be anybody – they're getting paid to manufacture the project for those companies, not with them, right? So that's really changed. So everybody all the way down the line is now a worker. But and, and that would be fine as long as 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 the uh, you know the disruption wasn't happening where the rates were dropping. So I mean, it's bad enough that that the business model changed to the point where people you know couldn't own their own content. But um, but the rates are going down. So what does that mean for the future? Well, you know, it means we're going to have a commodified labor market. Look at what happened in uh, visual effects, right? Visual effects you used to go to L.A. and you go down by Santa Monica Pier and there were all these nice two, three-story buildings that were full of visual effects houses. Well, they're all gone now. And there's a saying in Hollywood uh, amongst certain executive producers that said that goes like this if you haven't put a vfx companies out a company out of business on your film you're not doing your job right so what's happened with vfx companies i mean when you go and see uh blockbuster movies now you used to see like uh, ilm would be in there or whoever right well now you see look at the end credits there are hundreds and hundreds of people who employ in the vfx game but they're working for 50 companies Right. So instead of seeing ILM crew of 200 people on the end credit, that's you're now you're seeing, you know, 50 companies with 10 to 15 people. So what's happened there is that the VFX companies have been divided and conquered into smaller and smaller units. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So now the producers, uh, the the big guys can actually go in and hammer them on price a little more effectively because they're playing them off against each other. And I know this sounds horribly cynical. And, you know, if there's a Netflix exec listening, uh, you know, hey, I'm just coming from the creator perspective, right? Where I think that there's a better deal for creators, that creators should and can now have the ability to have their piece of the pie, and to have better lives as a result of that and to be able to do the work they do uh, with a lot more freedom. You know, I created Black Box to have more freedom for me and for my creator colleagues because we are special people. You know, I call it the creator class, actually. And so the creator class for me are people who are talented, generous, kind, hardworking resourceful, honest people. And I would say 99% of the people that I know that are creators fall into those categories. So that means we're going to get beat up as business people, plain and simple. So 
what we do is kind of give, we create a platform that's a safe haven that allows creators to actually not worry about all that business stuff, because just like so many other businesses, we want to automate a lot of it so that there is not a lot of backroom deals going on there. The the sharks can't play, you know, basically Um, we make a product and we move it through a market, just like any other industry. Look at the auto manufacturing industry, right? They've got this thing called the supply chain. And the supply chain means that all these parts are created by all these suppliers and brought together at the assembly plant. And it has to be um, it has to be all coordinated uh, properly. Well, you know what? Making a movie is no different than building a car. It's a supply chain. You have to bring all these resources together. They have to happen at the right time. Uh, budgets have to be respected. And, and then you deliver to the customer. So what I've done is created a platform that allows creators to be part of the supply chain and to own the end product as they're moving along. So it's a really, it's a really big shift in, in terms of, of an economic reality. Um, we liken it, Dave, to a return to the guild system, uh, you know, prior to the industrial revolution where um, guilds actually had um, these inherent protections in place. You know, if you were building a cathedral and you needed stonework done, you went to the stonemasons. And if you needed a bunch of pews, pews done and woodwork done in the church, you went to the carpenter's guild. And so what we are is a creator's guild and we're global and we're digital and we are going to change the face of the industry. And uh, I, I know exactly where you're coming from, by the way, about the VX about the VX situation. I actually have yeah. friends because I've had, I've actually had friends who've worked in the industry, and they were describing you know pretty much what you just described as well. Um, but you know, black box looks awesome. Uh, I'm all in favor of anything that allows you know uh, creators, good creators. Um, to you know, to share their stuff and to actually get seen, uh, because you know, like I've said before in this podcast, the idea of just uploading something to YouTube now and saying, "Hey, it'll go viral," is like a one in a million shot, uh, and, and you can't rest anything on that. That's not a business yeah. plan, for sure, man. Well, you know, that's just that standard fragmentation. But we're working within a global context, and we're working within uh, a digital platform context. Nobody's done this before, so no one really knows the rules. But we do know that there is an awful lot of money being aggregated at the top of these multinational corporations. And and then you then you have to bring in the idea that they are some of them are publicly traded corporations, so that whole dynamic is very different too. So who end up who ends up getting caught in the vice? are the individual creators because in fact as these companies blew apart you know big i had a company with 40 people right and that company is pretty much gone now um so the protections that were afforded to the workers within that relationship that they had with me as their boss they're on their own now right so what we're doing is we're actually saying look we don't want to aggregate these people back into a company again but we want to have a platform that performs those functions for them that allows them to have uh, a little more predictability and security in their life so uh and i should tell you that uh we analyzed the market and we said look ultimately we want black boxers we call them black boxers to be able to do the work they love to do. So if they are 
they they want to work on feature films and they're a gaffer. We want them and they love being a gaffer. We want them to be able to be a gaffer on a great feature film. Uh, on regular work. And if they're an actress, we want them to be an actress. And if they're a musician, we want them to be a composer. We want them to be able to do what they love to do. So what we allow them to do is come together into groups of like-minded creators and make the project they want to make. That is, um, that has a lot more creative freedom for everybody. Now, not a lot of, not, not most, sorry, not most. A lot of people, are they just want their gig and they want to get paid and they want to go home and they want to be safe and they want to make money and they want to take care of their families. And that's that's never going to end. But we offer an alternative to people who, you know, kind of feel that desire to to really be involved in something that takes a lot of craft, a lot of love and ends up being a very valuable product. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, Moonlight won the Academy Award two years ago. And. Moonlight was made for reputedly 150, uh, sorry, 1.5 million bucks. And then there was a, a big marketing budget. Well, not big, 5 million, probably the one against it. So Moonlight ends, getting a, ends up getting a theatrical run that did well. And then they ended up doing very well on VOD and cable and they won an Academy Award. And, but I have to wonder, okay, this movie is going to make $150 million after production net. Who's getting that money? Is it the people that sacrificed their rate, showed up, did the extra hours, put the love into it, and made the movie? Or is it somebody else? Well, I think we all know the answer is it's somebody else. So what if, my question is, what if a group of filmmakers could come together, make a product like Moonlight, and now the budget is not going to be $1.5 million because no one's getting paid. You're doing it in kind for ownership in the movie. And then if you've got some fixed costs, but we can bring everybody into this scenario. Studio owners that are getting squeezed can actually let us use the studio for a piece of the movie. Uh, camera department. Maybe they've got two-year-old cameras that aren't being rented for full price anymore that they'll put on the movie for a piece of the action. Craft, anybody, anybody involved, location owners, um, uh, transport, the works. And you're still going to have some fixed costs. So now you can make the movie for a really good movie for two or $300,000 or less. It all depends on, you know, what your consumables are. So now you make the movie. Great. And it's owned by the people that made it. Okay, this is a key thing. Now, if that movie goes out and it makes $150 million net after distribution or whatever, okay, and you can even bring a marketing team in to be part of your group. So you don't have to go pay for marketing. You can find a marketing group and say, do you want to be part of this, right? Anybody can be part of it. The distrib distribution people can be part of it. So you create this wonderful waterfall saying, okay, all these dollars that come in, they're all going pro rata to the people that own the property. And by my math, on a $1.5 million feature that does $150 million net after distribution over a period of time, because it's long tail money, and that's how money gets made on distribution platforms now, everyone would get paid 100 times the rate. Good, bad? What do you think? That sounds like a good, uh, a good trade-off. Yeah, man. So where we started is saying, we're going to dream big, right? At Black Box, we're going to dream big. We're going to say, we want to make blockbuster feature films. We would love to be able to make a Black Panther in five years. 
and have all of the people that made the movie get a really nice paycheck, right? Because they deserve it. We love these people. They need they need this opportunity because right now it's just it's not working out so good, right? So um, that's our dream, but we couldn't start there. So we decided to build our platform in a smaller, more highly defined market, and that's the stock footage market. So currently our platform services stock footage. So what you can do is you can take your camera right now, like you're a camera guy, right, Dave? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Okay, do you own your own gear? Yeah, I have it right here. Actually, oh, it's actually right behind me. You can't see it because it's a podcast, but yeah, it's right behind okay. me. Okay, so what kind of camera do you run? Uh, I have a Canon Rebel. Uh, uh, I think it's the, was it the 60, the 70? Okay, so let's say you've got a 60. Um, you could probably walk out of where you are right now, and it's not daylight there anymore. So let's say you get up in the morning and go for a walk, and you see something beautiful that you want to capture. So you do it. And then you see something else that you want to capture, or maybe, you know, whatever. Uh, and this is a very simple example, mind you. So, but you can then go home and you can actually curate that into five very nice clips. You can put them up to our platform. We'll take them out to all the big uh, stock agencies. And when the money comes, it returns to Black Box. And then we take 15% of the net sale and we deliver the rest to you. So, Basically, it's an upload once get to many scheme. Now, let's say you go back to your house and you say, oh, I don't really don't want to edit this. Uh, Pat, you want to edit this? And you call me up and you say, you want to edit my clips? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do it for 30%. And you go, okay, deal, 30%. So now you can upload those clips to Blackbox or, or send me, sorry, send me the raw and I will actually edit them, upload them, tag them, and do the metadata. And then when and then when the money comes, Blackbox automatically pays me my share, and you automatically get paid your share. You don't touch my money, I don't touch your money. Or another option is you want to edit, but you hate doing the metadata. You hate doing the keywords and the descriptions and all that. So you can actually edit them, upload them, and then hand off to me, and I'll do the metadata, and I'll do it for 15%. So that's what we built, and it actually works. So we've got thousands of people all over the world doing this. I just saw a project go through where a guy in South Africa had 700 clips. He put them up on the platform, and he assigned the curation to the metadata curation to uh, to a woman here in Ottawa, where I live, actually, who's a very good editor. So now we've got this international uh, collaboration going. And it all happens within our platform. So that's where we started. And our next move is into short form and long form. Um, and you can do YouTube videos this way. So like like I said earlier, a lot of YouTubers, they want to do everything themselves because they want to keep the money, right? Like, And they don't know what they're going to make. And it's like it's all freaking everybody out. Well, what if you said, well, why don't we do this as a team? Why don't we actually do some produced content where we actually use real writer, real director, real, you know, real, real, real. And everybody works together and makes some product that's watchable. And then you put it to black box and we manage the whole process of getting it to audience and then dividing the revenue. And it works. 
I mean, that's all I have to say. It, it works. It works really, really well. And then as, as, as we grow, we're going to take on bigger projects, indie films. Uh, right now, if there are indie filmmakers that have had no luck distributing their film, you can contact me and I will find a way to get your film onto our platform. You will have to go back and figure out who did what on the movie so you can make sure that everybody gets compensated when the money comes. And then we will, through our developing relationships with distribution and VOD, uh, we'll have a good chance of getting your movie seen. So um, this is what we're trying to do. And, you know, I think that's great, too, Pat. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Black Panther. Uh, I'm always in favor of the movies like like Moonlight um, where or movies like obviously the Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity. You know, those movies that come out of left field that just, you know, it go they go apeshit, you know, um, my yeah. big fat Greek wedding. You know, these movies that are shot for like twenty thousand dollars and they, they have a pretty good uh, re- return, uh, you know, and, and, you know, just just as we talk about, you know, gear and, and producers and stuff. You know, I once had a friend of mine who was going to make a movie for ten grand, and this this person who who owned a rental house got a hold of him, and he came back to tell me, he goes, Dave, uh, I can't do it for ten thousand anymore. I I I need uh, uh, a quarter of a million, and yeah. I said, well, I said, no, you don't. I said, for the love of God, you don't need a quarter. I I've read his script, and he did not need a quarter of a million dollars. He could have done it for ten thousand dollars at the max, uh, because it only took place in one room. There was no stunts or explosives. There's no squibs. There's nothing. There's no famous people that were needed or were going to be in it. So I was like, man, just just don't even worry about that stuff. Well, you know, the, the whole point here is that making a good – like you can make a movie. Anybody can make a movie. I got an iPhone. I can make a movie right now. Like no problem, right? But are you going to make a movie that's going to be compelling, that that someone's going to want to watch? And yeah, you can bank on having the next Blair Witch or whatever. But I believe that for the same reasons that our labor market have disrupted, we have an army of young filmmakers who are actually quite talented and capable who are coming along. But the problem is they're trying to do it all themselves. Like they're trying to self self-produce self-make and self-distribute movies. And I think that that's a missed opportunity because when we put together, when we put groups of talented people together, it makes for better product. And when we work together and we try to develop platforms like Blackbox that help people do the business end, which is often where things fall apart, right? Like for example, you know, I, I make a movie for 10 grand and I call in all the favors in town, right? Well, if, if that movie ends up going viral and I make, I don't know, two and a half million dollars on it, how much that money is going to go back to the people that helped me? There are no deals in place. There's no structure. There's no system. And it's very likely that those people aren't going to get paid because they did it as a favor. Right. Yeah. So what Blackbox does is eliminates the favors. We don't do favors and we don't do deferrals. No one ever gets paid on a deferral. You know anyone that's ever been paid on a deferral? It's a big joke. Like yeah, I know, true. I know Hollywood actors, you know, who I talked to. Uh, like I was talking to a guy named Martin Cove, who was the sensei in the Karate Kid, uh, and Martin's a great guy. And I said, "Hey, Martin, how many deferrals have you ever been paid on?" He just laughed. He laughed. He said, "No, people don't get paid on deferrals." And uh, he's bullish on black box, actually. Like, there's a lot of actors in Hollywood that'll, that'll do this because it's not a deferral and it's not a favor. And it's not a rate 
reduction either. It's a fair share of the movie that you make. So if it makes money and when it makes money, you get paid your share. Our system is guaranteed to pay you. So so for a guy that wants to do a $10,000 movie, I would say make a million-dollar movie, but make sure it's all in-kind, and then your fixed cost will only be $10,000 if you happen to have to buy some squibs. So bring the rental house in as a partner. Bring the studio in as a partner. Bring the locations in as a partner. Bring the actors in. Bring the crew in. Bring everybody in as a partner. I mean, even to the point where you're making an indie and you say, you know what, well, we're not catering this. Bring your own lunch, right? And, and make a great movie and capture the passion of all those people and get the best people involved, right? Like, don't get your cousin to hold the boom. Get a sound guy to do it. Get somebody who's really good at it to do it. And then guess what? You're going to have usable audio and post, right? And your movie's not going to sound like crap. And you can get yourself a decent composer. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And we learned all of this through the stock footage thing because, you know, what we see, we see people who are learning faster, doing better work and making more money. Um, we've got people actually on our platform right now who are getting ready to quit their jobs and they're not taking gigs anymore because they're making enough money off of their stock footage portfolio to uh, to float their boat. And now what they're doing is they're saying, great, I'm floating my boat from my stock work, so I'm going to go make my movie now. And they're going to make it using a black box, uh, or the black box platform. I know it's a big idea. Like a lot of people are sitting out there in your audience right now going, what the hell is Pat talking about? I don't get this at all. Right. But uh, because it is a huge, huge shift. It's an absolute it's it, it's a paradigm shift. Like it's revolutionary. And I'm not saying that because, you know, hey, you know, Pat's a smart guy. He did a revolutionary thing. I actually did this so that I could have a better life facing a disruptive market. And I did it so that my peeps the creators who I know <laughs> could have a better life too. And we did it as well so that the guy living in uh, Nairobi, which is a bad place to be right now with all the flooding, but the guy living in Nairobi could go out and capture images of, of all the wonderful uh, natural beauty that there is in Nairobi or in uh, Kenya. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. As opposed to having a bunch of white guys fly in on a plane with an Aria Alexa and uh, and leave with all the imagery and all the guy got was his uh, his porter feet. So we can actually go in and and train that guy and maybe even help him get equipped so that he can be the content creator because he's possibly very talented. So we're going to liberate a lot of creators using this platform and we're going to flatten out the world and we're going to make it a fair deal. Yeah. And when you were talking about everyone getting paid deferrals and stuff like that, it always reminds me of, um, how, the, the, what they call the Hollywood accounting side of things where, you know, uh, you know, people get points and, and the movie never turns a profit. So you never see those yeah. points. Yeah. Um, but, but when you were, you were talking about black box, Pat, I, I, you know, all of this, you know, makes sense to me. Um, it sounds like a really, really, really cool platform where people can actually collectively get together. And if you do decide to, Hey, hire this DP or hire this person or hire this, whatever, you know, people will get, you know, people ha now are bounded to, to, to get paid 
rather than deferrals or like you know pr- yeah. uh, you know promises or you know whatever um which i i, I th- which sometimes by the way you know i i just want to mention I've seen that getting people into a lot of trouble before too. Um, deferrals. Uh, you know, I, I actually had a, a project um, not that not, uh, that I saw. I, I, I wasn't involved in, and um, feelings were let out on Facebook. And you know how what happens then, Pat? It just snowballs, and all of a sudden, you have people yelling at each other on social media. Exactly. It just gets ugly. Exactly. Because, you know. Uh, well, you know the one the one point I would like to leave people people with is that you can work. Or you can earn. Okay. So black box allows people to earn. It converts you from being a worker into an earner and an owner of the content that you make. It's like, um, it's like, you know, there's lots of good analogies out there. I think farming is a good analogy. Do you want to be a paid uh, farm worker getting a low rate? Or do you want to be a sharecropper and own part of the product that goes up? You know, and so what we're creating is an environment where you have that choice because nobody works in black box there. It's not a job. It's not a gig. Um, Not at all. Actually, it's very different. And just so everybody knows, the website is www.blackbox.global. It's not a dot com. It's a dot global. So www.blackbox.global. I had to throw that in there, Dave. And, uh, you know, come to the website, check it out, see what you think. It doesn't cost anything to join this. Uh, if you do join, um, you know, we want to see you get active and we're going to try to help you do that. But it's not free candy. Like, you got to work. You got to do the work. And, uh, you know, um, there's stuff that you have to do. You got to make content. You got to edit it. You got to curate it. You got to upload it. But, if you're trying to go to five stock footage libraries right now, you got to upload five times and it is not fun work. So we take that whole aggro out for you. And then if you're trying to share revenue with a collaborator, um, you know, like for instance, if you want to do a shoot tomorrow with three models in a cafe, you could actually, instead of having to pay the cafe and the models, you could say to the models in the cafe and find people who are willing to do this, to take a share of the revenue of the footage. Awesome. And we got a lot of people doing this. Uh, we have a member that did a cool shoot in a hospital and did a whole bunch of medical stuff. And uh, everybody is getting paid on a share basis. So you see these little micro transactions going through, but it adds up. It really does. Like a lot of the stuff that I've done, I've been lucky. Uh, you know, um, I'm not a genius cinematographer or anything, but I know what I'm doing. And I've done lots and lots of shoots where I go out for a week and do wildlife stuff where I would have gotten paid anywhere from six to $10,000 for the week if I was working for a network. And uh, my projection on some of those shoots is $100,000 to me because the market is so, uh, the market demand is so high for that type of footage. So, like you can make your day rate over a period of years using black box, or you can make five to 10 times your day rate or more. Um, and we've got lots of examples of that. Some really spectacular examples of people making a lot more money doing this than they would get on a gig. So it's, it's looking really, really promising. We're really excited. And we really want to welcome as many creators in. I mean, Dave, I'm going to invite you to join, bud. Just 
go to the website and register and maybe you got a bunch of clips you want to throw up there and uh and be part of the community and that's another thing about this we've got we got a great community feel like we have a facebook group for members where it's the least toxic facebook group i've ever seen it's almost too nice and everybody is so cooperative and supportive and is getting into the spirit of what we're trying to do because it's you know, black box is not a dog eat dog world it's a place where we're all in it together and when we when when one person succeeds everybody succeeds you know I, and i'm going to link to all that in the show notes everybody and I'm going to check it out. I, 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 I'm dead serious, Pat. I also want to check out this non-toxic Facebook group because uh, I have one myself, and I keep it. I, I, I'm the moderator, so it's all always kept non-toxic. But I, I've never seen anybody else have a non-toxic Facebook Facebook group because usually it voids into something. Um, and funny enough, it's usually screenwriting Facebook groups that go bad. For <laughs> fans. Um, and and, and I, I've seen the fights, and I've seen everything else, man. Um, but uh, you know, I was going to ask you uh, where can people find you out online, but you. You know, uh, you know, I, I will make sure to link to that. You you already gave the URL, um, sure. but uh, I, I I I'm going to link to that and everything else we talked about. Everyone in the show notes at DaveBullis.com. Uh, Pat, I want to say thank you so much for coming on. Man, it's been a real pleasure. Um, you know, you're a great interviewer, so thanks for that. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, you know, thanks for letting me uh, talk about Black Box. Uh, my pleasure, Pat. And you know, let, let's talk again real soon. Uh, you got it, brother. Thanks a million. I want to thank Dave so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmMuscle.com forward slash 689. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.